Welcome to Step Into the Story. Incredible conversations of how the Bible changes lives, changes families, and changes communities across the globe. And here's your host, Phil Tuttle of Walk Through the Bible. Welcome to Step Into the Story. Every time we get together, we have a conversation with sometimes an old friend of mine, sometimes a new friend of mine. Today, it's somebody that I've been privileged to know for quite a while. But we explore the intersection of their story and God's story. And um, this conversation I've been looking forward to for a long time. And there's specific reasons that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about during this episode why now is the right time for you to sit down uh, with my friend Roy Peterson and hear his story and how it's been impacted and intersected by God's story. Roy, welcome, welcome to my podcast. I'm so glad you're doing this. Thank, thank you so much. Good to be with you, Phil. Well, you know, sometimes we look at like a like a traumatic time in somebody's life, and and um, how maybe maybe that's when they connected with God. And then there's other times it's really the it's really the whole arc of the story of their life. And Roy, I want to I want to take our conversation more that way today because it's it's your entire life story, I think, and and various points where we just so clearly see God working. But um, before we get ahead of ourselves, tell me about your growing up years. Um, what are some of your first memories? Tell me about your family growing up. Where were you raised? All that good stuff. Yeah, so uh, middle class, um, upstate New York, uh, not far from the Adirondack, Adirondack Mountains. Um, my father was in sales. My mother worked at J.C. Penney's. And, um, you know, we had a, had a uh, normal secular childhood. Didn't involve a lot of a lot of church, although I did have some church exposure, and I had, I had some neighbors that I believe were praying for me. Um, there was some vacation Bible school experience, a little bit of Christian camping um, that happened in my life, but it, it, there was no, uh, there was no point in my childhood uh, where I was led to Christ. My parents didn't go to church. I didn't grow up in a home where the gospel and the scriptures were a regular part of our lives. Hmm. So did you eventually, did you move to California or I know that figures prominently in your story. What, what age did that take place at? Yeah. So, you know, between 15 and 18, I started making some pretty bad choices and started following uh, more, if I could use uh, the culture of Woodstock, which was happening right around that period of time in my life, that, that whole culture I was very impacted by that, and it happened that Woodstock was just a, a, a few miles away from my home. It was a short drive, and so the the culture of music and drugs, rock and roll, and that promiscuous culture was was becoming, uh, unfortunately, very attractive to my young life. And at the age of 18, I dropped out of uh, my first year in university, and with some pretty wild friends, we headed west um, in my convertible Mercury, uh, we headed to California. What color? And, uh, what color was it, Roy? I'm trying to. I'm trying to picture this. 19, 1968 green Mercury with a white convertible top. If you can picture that, and um, we drove all the way to L.A. 
and thought we were going to discover the world and, and make a new life for ourselves in a much more exciting place than upstate New York. And in L.A., we landed. Hollywood, exactly. Wow. Wow. So what were you doing out there, aside from discovering a new yeah. life? Yeah, it was it was it was not a it was not an attractive life. It was a life that was spiraling down downhill. I got a job um, in the industry of tenting homes to fumigate them, and um, uh, the nightlife was a big part of our of our life. And and connecting with uh, some neighbors that were um, living really in close proximity to us and were involved in, in quite a few illegal activities. It, it uh, became clearer to me um, over time. I can remember one night uh, in their home, and uh, back in those days, you might remember the cars Cars used to backfire on a fairly regular yeah. basis. And um, a car made that loud explosion out of its tailpipe, and these neighbors, I was there in their apartment, they flipped all their album covers down, which were neatly around the side of the room, and they had long rifles and guns there uh, that they quickly picked up because they thought that backfire was somebody coming for them. I, that should have been a clue that I was in the wrong place, hanging with the wrong people. Um, but unfortunately, um, they invited me on a weekend trip to Mexico with them. My other colleagues from New York, my other friends, uh, roommates, they did not go. I chose to go to Mexico with these with these new neighbors. And they had with them, uh, Phil, uh, stolen charge cards, drugs, and um, all of us, two carloads of us, were arrested in Mexico on this trip. And I was the one that was left with the charges because we, one of the cars, I was driven by me. It was my car. And they paid... Um, I don't know who they paid, but they they bribed somebody to get out. And I was left with all the charges of the illegal activities on me. And I was arrested in Ensenada, Mexico, charged, tried and sentenced in Mexico to a long prison sentence. Wow. Wow. So. You go to prison. Um, I mean, describe I, I'm trying to visualize what that what that looked like and felt like. But, um, I mean, what was, what was going through your mind that, that first day, especially that first night there, there in that Mexican prison, uh, weeping, crying, crying, uh, fear, um, recognizing that I had made choices that led me into a desperate, desperate situation, um, surrounded by criminals, um, I did not speak Spanish. I couldn't understand anything that go was going on. My heart was so full of fear, Phil, that um, I was a broken 19-year-old uh, uh, experiencing the consequences of my of my own choices. Mm. Feeling like your life was over? And I definitely felt like my life. That was a progressive, deeper and deeper feeling that I was looking. The longer I was there, the more months I was there, the more I thought, I would die in that place that uh, my life was over. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's easy to feel like when our life hits bottom, whether it's something as dramatic as your experience, Roy, or, or, I mean, we've all, we've all made mistakes. We've all made really dumb decisions at various points. And to, 
to feel, you know, you said religion wasn't a big part of your life growing up, and, and, and yet some concept of there is a God, and he's probably not real happy with me, and I'm now, I'm outside of his reach. Um, were you thinking some of those things, too? I don't want to put words in your mouth. Well, I mean, it was hopeless. I, I I was hopelessly gone. The attorney had stolen all my money. He did not even show up at my court appearance. I was sentenced at a Spanish trial that I did not understand, and I didn't even have legal representation. I was sitting there by myself, and um, the first uh, set of, of uh, terms was up to five years, and then there were more charges coming that would have put it at nine years uh, that I would be there. And as a 19-year-old, that was that was beyond anything that I could comprehend or imagine myself living through. Um, I was losing weight. I was getting sick with the uh, Giardia and bacteria from the filth. I was sleeping on the floor of a cement floor in a prison, a cold prison cell. Um, it was it was a horrible, you know, foxhole uh, conditions, and it was ho- it was hopeless. So. At that point where, and if there is a God, he sure doesn't care about me and maybe doesn't even know I'm here. Um, God had a surprise for you. Tell, unpack that story. This is pretty awesome stuff. Well, on one side of the nation, we have Woodstock and uh, hippies going in a wild direction with music and drugs. And on the other side of the nation, literally on the opposite side of the nation in orange county california you have hippies that are turning to christ become known as the jesus revolution which people can see in the theaters today or possibly online the jesus revolution are these same hippies who are promoting anarchy promoting uh, rebelling against culture they actually are following a message of a of a California pastor named Chuck Smith, and he opened his church to these hippies, and they started coming to Christ, and they fell in love with Jesus and began to follow Christ's teachings, and unbeknownst to me, in Mexico, they're being taught that they should care about the orphan, the widow, the one in prison, the one, uh, the homeless, and they're going out and following Jesus' teaching. They're reading it and immediately doing it, Mm. and I'm sitting in this prison, and in on a Sunday morning in the fall of 1973, these Jesus people came into the prison I was in. Long hair, cutoffs, guitars, and Spanish Bibles. They came into Ensenada, Mexico to minister to the prisons from Southern California. Blonde hair, speaking Spanish, bilingual. They are ministering to the prisoners. And, and they saw me there and they said, dude, what are you doing here? Yeah. And, and they couldn't believe that I was there, number one, and they couldn't believe that I didn't speak Spanish or understand anything that was going on. And they, didn't ha- they did not have any English Bibles with them because they weren't expecting to find an American down there. Mm-hmm. So their, their radical obedience led them to meet me and promised me that they would come back someday and that they would bring me a Bible in my language, which I then had to hope and wait for, that they would remember, that they would really come back, and that they would have a Bible with them. Mm. 
I've been wanting to have you as a guest on here for a while. And when I said now is the perfect time, it's exactly because of what you mentioned. I mean, there's uh, the, the Kelsey Grammer movie, Jesus Revolution, that's out now is the story of, of Chuck Smith's church and the revival that took place there. And, you know, you've also got the Asbury revival unfolding. And I know there's critics of that and many people are skeptical about it, but, but, and God is doing something. And, and the cool part about when there's true revival is it, is it includes not only internal change and it's not just sustained worship, but it's, it's going, okay, we need to be doing the same stuff that Jesus told us to do. And, and that's what those guys and girls were doing when they met Jesus in a radical way. They're like, well, let's go do what he says. So there and they are. Not only, not only did they do what he said, Phil, but there was fruit from what they did, which is the proof of the Holy Spirit being involved. Is they, The things that they did had ripple effect across our nation from California to Florida to New York, they had fruit for their obedience. And so God, that that revival in 1973 um, has well-documented fruit. I'm just one piece of it. And as I watched the Jesus Revolution and I looked at the actors there, they looked, they looked like the people that came into my prison. By the way, it's, the, it's my 50th anniversary this year also, which is interesting timing that you asked me to do this interview. It was 50 years ago this summer that all of this happened. And so it's a year of jubilee for me. It's a year of returning to the roots and returning to the rejoice in what, what God did 50 years ago. But I, I wept at that in that movie theater as I looked at these people. I said, those are the guys that came and brought me well, anyway, the, the the short story is that they did come back. I had to wait. I had to literally wait for God's word. Phil. How long was it between their visits? Do you remember? Know. I don't. I don't remember. How do you even how measure many, time when you're sitting in a cell like that? Yeah. Every day felt like death. It, it it was. It felt like weeks that I waited for them to come back, and I'm sure it was. It might have even been more than that. Um, but they did remember, and they did come back, and they brought me an English Bible, which then I immediately be. Uh, engaged in a Bible study with, there were two other English speakers in the prison that invited me to study the Bible. And all three of us eventually prayed to accept Christ. One was a California drug smuggler. The other was a Mexican cartel assassin and it, and me. Uh, so the three of us created a little, uh, what you would call a cell group. And uh, we start uh, uh, reading the Bible every day together. That's a cell group. Yep. Wow. Wow. So you have hope in an eternal way when you come to know Christ. I mean, did you guys figure that out just from reading the scripture on your own? Or was that something that was shared with you? We had no access to radio or podcasts or messages. You know, the occasional pastor that came in um, was, I'm sure was helpful, but um, it was literally God's word, Phil. That's why it's so great for me to be on your program. It was the Bible, reading it together. The Holy Spirit spoke to me, spoke to them. I saw that the wages of sin is death. I saw that everyone has sinned, that we all need our Savior. We all need the Lord Jesus. 
And I saw that there was a promise in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that if I would turn to Christ, the Holy Spirit would come into my life and he would give me the strength to change because I knew in and of myself, I couldn't change, but with, with the Lord entering into my life. And so when I prayed the sinner's prayer, I prayed that Jesus would literally come into my life and help me to change. And inside those four walls, Phil, I was set free. Mm -hmm. So you're free in the spiritual sense, but physically you're still there and you're looking at years right. more in prison. Um, That's right. But God had a surprise for you. What happened? Oh my goodness. Um, so my, my father re recognized that nothing had worked that he had tried to do. He had sent money down for the attorney. He had tried to be helpful long distance from New York. So finally he and my brother came down to get my car out of the impound to see where I was, to see if there's any last minute things he could do with the U.S. consulate. Nothing happened, nothing worked. He was told it was too late. I was already sentenced. Uh, it was a done deal. He was getting his, my car out of the impound to drive it back to New York. Um, that day before he left uh, Mexico, he, he was allowed to come right in and see the floor I was sleeping on. And my father wept mm -hmm. at his inability to do anything. I had never seen my father weep in, in those 19 years. It was the first time his heart was broken. He went back to the hotel to have one last night's sleep. And the hotel owner saw him at the dinner table. He could hardly eat. And the hotel owner said to him, Mr. Peterson, what's wrong? I can see something physically, something mm -hmm. is wrong. My father, a very closed, quiet man, uh, broken by what he had seen my situation to be, confided in the hotel owner, how the attorney had stolen my money, had not represented me, how I was sentenced and more charges were coming. And the hotel owner said, stop, Mr. Peterson, wait a second, right there, hold that. I want to introduce you to the man who's eating dinner at this next table over. And at the next table over was a superior court judge for that state. Unbelievable. Wow. And he said, Mr. Peterson, please tell this judge what you've just told me. And that judge listened to my father's story, to my story. And he said, in December of this year, I will be seated on the 12th of December. And I'm going to bring your son's case up before me. And I'm going to set him free on that day have him walk to this hotel and have bus tickets waiting here for him from Ensenada to San Diego. And in San Diego, have airline tickets waiting for him back to his home. And he will be home with you for Christmas. Wow. So did that word get to you? Before my father left, he said, this is what the judge said. And of course, I was thinking of all the lies I'd been told lies by the sure. by the attorney. By the attorney, I had so many lies and my my roller coaster, emotional roller coaster had been up and down so many times. I, I just I had I had to believe I had to wait, I don't know how many more weeks, four, five, six more weeks for this day to happen. But on the day that he promised uh, the Mexican guard called my name in that Spanish accent which was hard for them to say my first name and come to the gate. And as I came and I approached the gate, sometimes they would hand me an envelope, but today the gate opened. He led me to another steel gate and that door opened. He led me into an office and there in this front office of the, of the prison, the front door was wide open and I could see 
out into the morning sun, the morning streets, people washing the sidewalks, cars going by. And I could see freedom was right there in front of me. And all I had to do was sign a few papers and they literally let me walk right out the door to go get my bus tickets to my plane tickets and to be at home for Christmas with Christ in my heart. Mm, 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 mm. So what was that first Christmas like? What was that reunion with your family? What, how'd that go down? Oh, you know, you can't even, the things that we take for granted, Phil, to have a bed to sleep in, to have clean water, to have warm water, to take a shower, to have a meal to, uh, with your family, with loved ones, the stuff that's in our everyday life, Phil, that we take for granted, we, we have no idea how blessed we are. So much riches, so much blessing. I went back to my previous employment where I'd been working in college. They said, where you been? I said, out west. They just let me come right back to work. They didn't, I didn't tell anybody where I, I had been out west. They just took me right back in. And, and um, my work ethic was through the roof. I mean, if they wanted me to work 12-hour days, I'd be happy to work 12 hours. They wanted me to work six days a week. I was working six days a week. I was so full of joy to be free and to work. The next thing I knew, they were making me the store assistant manager. And within 12 months, they promoted me and gave me my own retail store to manage. Phil, 12 months later, I'm the manager of my own retail store, hold, handling hundreds of thousands of dollars a year based upon <laughs> having been in prison for being immoral, illegal, unqualified, and the Lord's favor just started to come upon my life. So. That Christmas was the beginning of a whole new chapter, Phil. Mm. So on a business track and thriving in that, um, and yet some seeds had been planted in your heart about how your life changed and um, a value shift of what you wanted to invest your life doing. Um, let's, let's go down that road. Yeah, so, you know, um, Rita and I met, prayed for her salvation. She miraculously came to Christ. We started a family. We're deeply involved in the local church. And at 28 years old, somebody asks me to go on to the missions committee. And then I'm voted on to be the chairman of the missions committee. And so I'm in business. She's in the business world. We're raising a family. I'm volunteering on the missions committee. And I figured out what Matthew 28, 18 is about, that the Lord, the story of the Lord's Ark is that he wants people over the face of the earth to find out what I found out. He wants people in every language, tribe, and nation to discover what I had discovered in that Mexican prison. So I started to, what did I start to do? As a businessman, pray, give of my time, and give of my money. So those three things, prayer, time, and money, were immediately responses from our hearts as young parents, young newlyweds, young family, children, all the issues of, of private school, public school, costs of clothing, tuitions, all that. We made a priority to give to the Great Commission 
early on in our marriage. And, you know, the scripture says that where your giving is, your heart will be also. And so our heart followed our giving. And by the time I was 30 years old, we were applying to Wycliffe Bible translators to see if we could use our lives to help the peoples of the earth get the scriptures in their language. We found out that there's still people groups who don't have the Bible. So no one could even hand them a Bible. No one could even come into a prison or, in, or into a church and give them the scriptures because they hadn't been translated. So we thought this is the fundamental, most important thing that needs to be done on the face of the earth is, first of all, the scriptures have to be in every language. And that's how we made our decision to apply to Wycliffe Bible Translators. By the way, Wycliffe looked at my history and said, well... Wow! You know, <laughs> Just the resume we've always dreamed about right there. We're not quite sure you can go overseas as a missionary. As a missionary, we'll have to check the State Department. we got to check with Mexico to see if you're still wanted. And they sent uh, Bob Clamser, who's a world-class uh, uh, investigator, researcher. Bob Clamser went to Washington. He went to into Mexico. And he said to Wycliffe, I got the copy of the letter he wrote to Wycliffe. He said, there is no record of any kind that would keep Roy and Rita Peterson from serving in Wycliffe Bible translators. They are free and clear to become missionaries. Mm. So we got a lot more to talk about and um, we'll do that in a minute. But, you know, as I'm listening to, to Roy's story, I'm thinking about a resource that Walk Through the Bible has called Chiseled. And it's the story of Simon Peter and how God takes um, an ordinary, kind of arrogant fisherman, very, very brash, um, quick to speak, mouth sometimes in gear before his brain is engaged, and how God transformed Peter into a great leader. And um, that's exactly what God is going to do in Roy's life. We'll hear that story after the break. But um, if if you're listening to this, and the, regardless of where you are in your story, God wants to invade your story. He wants to rewrite your story. And in fact, the really cool news is he has a place in his epic story for you. Maybe it doesn't mean a career change. Sometimes it does. Most times it doesn't. But God wants to use ordinary people, just like each of us, to accomplish his work. So listen about this resource called Chiseled, and um, we'll talk about how you can get this. And it's, a, it's great for small groups. It's great for personal study. And then right after that, we'll be back and continue the unfolding of what God's doing in Roy's life. We'll be right back. When a master artist is creating a sculpture, he has a plan in mind for the stone. The skilled sculptor knows what he wants to achieve, and he uses his chisel to create the work of art he envisioned before he even picked it up. This is the lesson of Chiseled, becoming the masterpiece God created you to be, a six-session Bible study from Walk Through the Bible. Chiseled is based on the life of Simon Peter and how God crafted him into the man and leader that God always wanted him to be. In God's hands, anyone can become a masterpiece. God's work in Peter's life shows how he can work in our lives, too, to lovingly shape and sculpt us into the likeness of his son, Jesus. 
God will chip away everything in us that doesn't look like Jesus, making us into a living masterpiece that will forever reflect the beauty and glory of the artist himself. Find out more about Chiseled at walkthrough.org slash chiseled. Well, welcome back to Step Into the Story and the conversation today with Roy Peterson. What an amazing, amazing story of God's intervention in a life, the intersection, Roy, of your story and God's story. And it's we tend to emphasize, oh, we need to let God come into our story because we're so us-centered. And then over time, we realize, you know what? There's a much bigger story than my story. God has a plan that crosses the centuries, crosses cultures, and how incredible it is that somehow he can script us into his story. And that's the part of your life that we're really getting into now. So you're, you're doing well in business, and, um, and yet God shifted your values that that transformation wasn't just a ticket to heaven someday because God's not looking just for converts. He's looking for disciples, for close friends. And so you're applied to Wycliffe. You're, you're bothered by this idea that what changed your life, the Scripture, lots of people don't even have any access to that. That's a big part of what Walk Through the Bible does, you know, we don't do the translation, we don't do the printing of Scripture, but we try to peel the shrink wrap off of people's Bibles and give them access to it to get them engaged with Scripture. And it doesn't really matter if you're a, a tribe somewhere in the world with no access to Scripture, or you're sitting in suburban Atlanta, as I am right now, and you got nine Bibles on your shelf, but who knows what it even says, and how do I navigate this? It's, it's all part of the process. But the lead domino, so many times it needs to fall, is getting the Bible available to a people group. So that becomes the passion of your life. Pick up the story there, will you, Roy? Yeah, so you bring out a good point that we want God to come into our story. I, that's Phil, that, that is worthy of an entire podcast all by itself. Because if you look at the promises of Scripture— the promises of God are almost always dependent on us making him a priority in our lives. And, and it's us making him a priority that we start to experience unusual favor. Now, we have all of his kindnesses in his life, no matter no matter whether what we decide to do. But if we make him a priority, there are promises of favor that are there. And so what I the, now looking back on it, the decision that Reed and I made was to make his arc the priority in his life, his passion for the nations. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the story, that he is on a trajectory to reclaim everything that was lost in the fall. So we decided with our life, we're going to align with that arc of reclaiming every people group, every tribe, every tongue, that there would be a body of Christ, there would be believers in every place on the earth. What can we do? I'm a businessman. I'm an administrator, you know, I'm a manager. My wife was a professional photographer. What could she do? Well, surprise, surprise, Wycliffe said we can use both administration and photography to on the field manage 
manage the organization and send back the stories of God at work amongst these people groups. So we went, uh, they accepted us. We went to uh, South America and to Central America, spent almost a decade serving the minority people groups in uh, South and Central America, um, from the Waurani in Ecuador to the Mayans in Guatemala. Bible translation has been happening or is almost all finished completed for all those people groups in the Americas. There's just a few uh, people groups left in the Americas that need Bible translation. And we watch the church get, church get birthed and our lives filled with the richness of God using us for his purposes. Hmm. Hmm. That's just, that's what it's all about. That's, um, that's worth giving your life to. And you and Rita have done that. And the, and, the, and the incredible thing, this, this next juncture is what led to me having the privilege of meeting you. We, we entered, Phil, with a desire to serve. We, we said, how can we help? And you'll hear a lot of young people today saying, I want to be a leader. I want to be the CEO of something. And to me, that's a red, it's the red flag. Yeah. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think it's backed um, uh, substantially by scripture. Jesus calls us to serve and that the leader will be a servant first. And so in that position of servanthood, all we were doing was going down to serve. And in 1996, the Wycliffe board contacts us in Guatemala and says, Roy, would you allow your name to stand for the election of president of Wycliffe Bible translators? I am a college dropout. I am an ex-prisoner. I am I come from no pedigree whatsoever to an organization that's filled with PhDs and master's degrees, MDivs. It's the most educated, prestigious organization in the world of missions with 4,000 members and $100 million of revenue. And they're contacting this person to be the president of Wycliffe. So, Phil, that's how I got to meet you. They elected me president of Wycliffe Bible Translators in 1997. And you and I found ourselves seated at CEO partnership tables mm. and uh, thinking about how to reach the world for Christ, which we did together for many years. But it was that from that background, you see the power of God to take, like you said, chisel with Peter, to take somebody who's been broken and who's far from perfect and who simply makes their lives available to the one who created us. Mm. I mean, did you think they were nuts or, yeah, we, or did God yeah. whisper in your ear that, Hey, I'm, I'm part of this. Well, but you know, both two things happened. One side, you know, human nature says they're nuts. The spiritual side, the Lord had whispered into my heart that pay attention. I'm doing something here. And they invited us up to Dallas. This will tell you how, how, we thought they were nuts. They invited us up to Dallas for interviews. While we're in Dallas, Rita is out shopping at Walmart and Target to buy another year or two supply of things to take back with us to Central America. Because we thought, there's no way they're going to pick us. They had a lot of other quality candidates um, to pick. And we were shopping, anticipating it's not us. <laughs> wow. And yet it was you. It was. And um, you had a great, you had a great run, and despite lacking the pedigree, you had the ultimate pedigree, which is well, to say, I'm my life is a product 
of what is the mission of this organization. So right. that's right. it's hard to beat that when you stand before a group and go, let me tell you what the Bible can do, right? Well, so it did. It went for 23 years from that from 1993 up to 2020. It was 23 years of God's faithfulness that led to this chapter now where I'm mentoring and coaching coaching young nonprofit, next generation nonprofit leaders is what I'm doing today, mm. um, helping them be successful at running running organizations. And so, uh, but you're right, it was 23 years of God's faithfulness to lead three different, three different Bible organizations. Yeah, uh, we need to double click on that a minute. So you go from Wycliffe to the seed company, is that correct? That's right. Um, a lot of people have heard of Wycliffe, less are familiar with seed company. What makes it distinct, but also closely tied to the mission of Wycliffe? Yeah, so it wasn't much of a move because the seed company was started by Wycliffe and is actually part of the Wycliffe orbit. Um, Wycliffe, most of your listeners may know that Wycliffe has sent Western missionaries to do the translation for nearly 80 years. It's been happening. So Wycliffe decided to start experiment with a model where they would not send a Western missionary, they would train the people themselves to translate the Bible. So you have mother tongue translators, you have indigenous people being equipped to translate the Bible. And the seed company was that experiment. It started out as an experiment with 10 languages. And Phil, today it's entering into 2000th language. 2000 languages, the seed company has been empowering mother tongue speakers to do the translation themselves. Mm. It's probably outside the scope of today's conversation, but I have marveled at what could have been a very destabilizing, could have been become a split, you know, of, of a new branch wanting to more embrace technology, this radical idea that, that people can translate the scriptures in their own language versus the expert who crosses an ocean and has has all the training to do it. And yet, somehow or other, Wycliffe had the foresight to say, this can all fit under our umbrella. And what could have been divisive instead ends up accelerating the Bible translation movement in incredible ways. Bring, bring yeah. us up to date. You, you also had a time serving with American Bible Society, which I've always kind of laughed at that name because that name is often misunderstood of that's, well, it's only focused on America. And it's like, well, how did you go backwards in your career progression? But actually, American Bible Society um, has a heart for the whole world. And so it's just a further extension of God's calling on your life. But, but how, does, how does all that fit together? I mean, is that you said it's 23 years and Okay, they printed different business cards, but it's really one calling, right, on you? Yeah. yeah, a lot of people don't know that before Wycliffe ever existed, the Bible societies translated the Bibles for all the major languages of the world. You, you have three to four billion people today that have the Bible because of the Bible societies. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you think of Korean, you think of Chinese, you think of Arabic, you go around the world at the mega languages of the world. 
it was the Bible societies who translated them. And the Bible societies to this day have a large footprint with hundreds of translations that are happening. But they get very little press. They get very – Wycliffe has kind of soaked up all the oxygen of, uh, of the minority languages and the, uh, the most difficult-to-reach peoples, uh, which is very admirable what Wycliffe's been doing. But all these last 80 years – the Bible societies have kept translating the Bible for languages all over the world. So um, that is kind of a hidden fact from the from the average observer. But I really had a Bible track, um, including translation and advocacy and scriptures in use. Wycliffe, Wycliffe was a huge scripture in use advocate, um, and that didn't get much. Everybody thought Wycliffe just translated the Bible. But the other side of translation was let's get it used on the radio, on, on, on Faith Comes by Hearing, Jesus Film. And so quietly, Wycliffe has been working with these scriptures and use people like yourself to help the Bible uh, get used and heard and, and uh, transforming people's lives. Mm. Just, I want to stick a parenthesis in here. Can you sketch out for our listeners, what's the current, where do we stand globally in terms of translation and making the scripture accessible to all languages, where where are we as of today? We've, uh, as a team of uh, the 10, 11, 11 largest uh, Bible agencies in the world, we've made an agreement that we're going to work together by the year 2033, just 10 short years from now. Everybody in the world will have either all scripture or enough scripture to to know the Lord Jesus and plant a church. And so the, the trajectory, there's still a lot to do. There's about 1,900 languages, um, uh, well, it's over 2,000 languages being translated right now. Um, there's, um, uh, there's 700 languages, the mega languages of the world that have the whole Bible. Uh, there's about 1,500 languages that need translation to start. And that's, that's the point of the spear for this next decade is to start those 1500 languages about 150 a year which is very doable um uh, that by 2033 uh scripture will be in every place in the world that's i mean that is that that's a possibility now something that's been on god's heart from the very beginning you know and he called abraham he's like ultimately i will bless every people group on the planet and you know, missions wasn't invented in Acts. It wasn't even launched by Jesus. It's always been the heart of God. From the very beginning. And when the disciples said to Jesus, when is all this going to happen? When will all the destruction and all this take place? And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel will be preached to all nations. Then the end shall come. Mm-hmm. And so Jesus defined something that had to happen. God's not going to wrap everything up and leave people in the dust not having had an opportunity to know his son. This gospel will be preached to all peoples. Then the end shall come. So you and I could talk forever. I suppose we got to land this flight um, pretty quick here. But how how old are you now, Roy? Uh, 69. 69, okay. So um, I'm just a very few years behind you. When you start hitting our age, you you look at things differently, and it, there's a shift between okay, what does God want me to do? And you and I have both always 
been committed to multiplying ourselves through other people. But especially now, that's the focus of however many years God gives back to you. Talk about the really cool ministry that God has led you into for right now, you and Rita. Yeah, when I was retiring from American Bible Society, three or four of my heroes, um, Lauren Cunningham, um, Paul Eshelman, Samuel Chang, we got together, Bob Varney, we got together for a time of prayer. What do we do with a transition at this stage of life? And through these men praying with me, uh, we had booked a hotel room to a conference room to spend the day praying and thinking. These men spoke into my life and they said, Roy, invest in the next, take these next years, however many they are, to invest in the next generation. Pour yourself into discipling and mentoring and coaching younger leaders. Um, I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what, how, you know, what that looked like. Uh, COVID came, the lockdown. I went online and took an executive coaching course for nine months to, to see what are the key elements of, of being a coach rather than a president, a CEO. And in May of uh, 2020, I hung my shingle out. And Phil, I am full-time right now. I have got so many clients. I counted last week. I've got 25 clients right now that I'm coaching um, in the nonprofit ministry world. Well, you're certainly uniquely positioned to do that. I can't imagine anybody better to be mentored by. If, if our listeners wanted to get in touch with you and find out about this opportunity or, or just hear more of your story, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Uh, two things, uh, petersonexecutivecoaching.com, all one word, petersonexecutivecoaching.com. Or if you go to bibles.com, um, ABS's website, and um, and search for Set Free, my autobiography um, is on there, both print and digital, on the ABS website, bibles, plural, bibles.com, and search for Set Free, and you'll find my story available and all of the proceeds, I'm not promoting it myself, Phil, 100% of the proceeds go into Bible translation and the Bible cause, uh, completely dedicated that book to God's name to make him famous. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll sure put that information in our show notes as well. But as you're listening to this story, it's I'm so glad we didn't start with the end, because honestly, Roy, I've known you for a long time. And in, in terms of Christian leadership, you are a stud. You just are. And the ultimate professional and just class guy and and all of that. And it's very easy to go, oh, this was just, I mean, you talk about a born leader. It's Roy Peterson. And this debate of where do leaders come from? Are they born? Are they made? And they're really neither one. They're not born. They're not manufactured. You get this degree. You get this. You climb the org chart, all of that. I love your story because there are so many things in it that just don't make sense. And that crazy career track that God has brought you on brings so much hope to so many, many, many of us. Um, you know, and if you're listening to this today, you may you may feel like, hey, I'm I'm still sitting in a cell. It may not be in a Mexican prison, but I'm I'm in bondage. I can't shake this habit or this addiction, or my life just seems to lack purpose. And I hope as you've heard Roy's story, you realize same God, 
same God wants to work in your life. And that's mm. one of the big reasons Walk Through the Bible exists, is to connect you with Scripture, and we want to walk with you through that journey. Check out some of the resources that we have. We'd love, we'd love to be a part of, of guiding you through some of that journey, just coming alongside. But I hope you're encouraged today as you hear Roy's story unpacked from, from really the pits and, and from a state of hopelessness to a life that is significant and purposeful, not always easy, stress along the way, still disappointments, but, but a God who is faithful and is worthy of our trust and a God who wants his word shared with every person on this planet so that, so that people have a shot at that same kind of relationship. That's really the ultimate reason why I wanted to start Step Into the Story. And Roy, thank you. I can't imagine a, just a better incarnation of my dreams for this podcast than the way you've unfolded your story today. So thank you very much, my friend. You're welcome, Phil. It's a joy, joy to be with you again. I miss, miss our times together. And I do too. I do too. All right. So um, share this with your friends. Click subscribe so you don't miss a single issue. Um, and then get this out to people because this is a message of hope that is desperately needed. And think about the age Roy was when all this happened. I mean, we're looking at a generation who's just starving for a cause that's worth giving their lives to. So if you're older and you're listening to this, think about kids, think about grandkids that need to hear this story. And we'll see you next time back here on Step Into the Story. Thank you for joining us for the Step Into the Story podcast, powered by Walk Through the Bible. We'd love to hear what you think by giving us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Also, don't miss a single episode by clicking the subscribe button. If you'd like more resources to help you explore and live God's word in your daily life, visit walkthrough.org. That's W-A-L-K-T-H-R-U dot O-R-G. Walk through the Bible. Take a walk. Change the world.